Welcome to The Optimal Path, a podcast about product decision-making brought to you by Maze. I'm your host, Ash Oliver, UX designer and design advocate. Great products are the result of great decisions. Decisions that deliver value for customers and the organization. In this podcast, you'll hear from designers, product managers, and researchers about the ideas informing decision-making across all aspects of product development. Today, I'm joined by Julian Della Mattia. Julian is a multidisciplinary, combining his work across UX research, facilitation, and training. He's currently a UX research lead at Kiwi.com and founder of the facilitation agency, The 180. He's been training researchers, product designers, and PMs in facilitation techniques throughout high-growth companies around the world. Julian, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Ash. Thanks for having me. And there's some natural chemistry happening for us in this episode, which is pretty cool. Uh, we know each other from back at your time at Glovo when the team was bringing Maze on board a couple of years ago. And then we crossed paths again in the Workshop Masters program through AJ and Smart, which might be referenced in what we're about to talk about today. So it feels pretty kismet to be doing an episode together on this topic. I'm, I'm super looking forward to it. I'm also super excited. And yeah, thanks for having me here. So our topic is indeed on facilitation or workshopping and what this unlocks for product teams. Maybe we can start from a basic level set since there might be some misconceptions or less awareness around facilitation and workshops. So let's kick it off with uh, your definition of facilitation. All right. So regarding facilitation, facilitating workshops and all this family of words and concepts, I would say the first uh, degree of misconceptions are about terminology. So there's not a single definition to, to these things. It might mean different things to different people. I've heard, for example, people saying or thinking that facilitation is about moderating a discussion or that facilitating was also a readout of research results. I've also heard people referring to workshops as, I don't know, like a presentation or a training. So it's, it's super tricky to pinpoint a specific definition to all these terms. I can give my take to this. I always think of facilitation as putting people together in a room, making them go through a series of exercises within a limited time frame to achieve a specific outcome. No, those are the four pillars for a workshop. I also feel that there's this misconception that facilitation is kind of limited or, or kind of more targeted to the C-suit to put it in a way or for big stuff. Some people think of facilitation as a big wigs there. They all go like one day to the woods and they all think of the company strategy. Of course, that's the type of facilitation, you know, company retreats uh, that's, that exists, but that's not the only type of facilitation. This is a little bit like music. You have the Philharmonic Orchestra and that's music. But if you pick up your guitar and, you know, jumps and blues with some friends, it's also music. You know, so it's the same with workshops. You can have really for big stuff or you can have it for more micro stuff or for day-to-day -day team dynamics. This is always about human communication. That's actually the base, like the, at its core, it's that. I agree. You know, to me, facilitation really enables teams to solve more problems, innovate faster and make stronger decisions. And that's by using the power of workshops. So I think like the facilitation is around the experience and the delivery and the leading through that journey. And workshops are more around the actual building blocks or the content of what you're trying to accomplish. Let's look at the when. So what scenarios, challenges, 
or decisions are good situations for facilitation or running a workshop? As I said, you know, we have different degrees and different scopes you can use it for. You know, it could be for something that's more like company-wide, like something that's strategic, that is more like the vision of the business. But you can also go like micron within your team, let's say, you know, facilitation for a, a specific product or, or a flow or aligning on what we should do next. Aligning on the roadmap, let's say you're a researcher and you want to define, okay, what, what do we need to work on for the following queue? Or you can use it for ideation sessions, for example. If you're a designer and you said, okay, let's get some designers. Okay, let's get all designers from other teams together and let's just ideate and get some new ideas for this flow. Those are things that facilitation is super useful for. Other stuff, for example, is like sometimes you're lost as a product manager, for example. You don't know where to take your product or you have different ideas. So you need to maybe prioritize on what's the most impactful thing you you, you can work on and what's the, what's the next big thing. It can even help you to learn what, what went well and what didn't go so well in the previous queue or for this project. For researchers, for example, as you mentioned, I'm also a researcher, you know, for putting insights into into practice you know sometimes the output is lost there in in, in the drawer somewhere it's like yeah it's a it's a nice report i know pms listen to it or designers is, or other stakeholders listen to it but it's not translated into the product that you can do with facilitation for example you can then organize a co-creation session and kind of like drag those insights into the product as i said facilitation is super wide you can go from company strategy to ideation session to co-creation session with users to a design sprint is very malleable, you know? So there are many, many cases. If you use them wisely, they're super effective. They really take your team on your product to the next level. Yeah, when I think of like workshops, for example, the first things that kind of come to mind is like sprints or retros or even like AJ and Smart coin, like the, the lightning decision jams. And like there's these templates that even might work well in certain scenarios. But I think that's where maybe, again, there might be this preconceived notion that you slap a template down of a Miro board and you get a meeting in place and that's supposed to be facilitation and goes beyond just the the variation of places in which you can facilitate, but it's the actual how of being able to do that that makes it, I think, different from a meeting, as you've described. I have to say, I would rather have people using templates from Miro and trying to facilitate even the wrong way than having these useless meetings or this thing that, yeah, like one meeting, you know, one hour meeting that then leads to another one hour meeting that then everything could have been an email. And then uh, there's a lot of misalignment. So I, I would rather have them do wrong facilitation than no facilitation at all. Maybe that begs the question. You've made mention of some of the great opportunities and, and places across these different levels for the opportunity for facilitation. Do you see people potentially trying to turn everything into a workshop? Like where is a workshop or facilitation maybe not the best case? Yeah, you have the thing of like the new shiny object. Uh, yeah, okay, now we we know how to do worship. So everything becomes a worship. You know, this is like <laughs> the one who has a hammer sees a nail everywhere. You know, it's like kind of the same thing. So when I train teams in facilitation, I, I try to make them, you know, aware of this. Like, okay, now that you have this skill that you can now incorporate into your skill set or your toolkit, just be mindful of uh, of how you use it. You know, it's like the same way if this meeting could have been an email, this workshop could have been a Slack message or an email too. Facilitation and workshops are about bringing people together. So be mindful if you bring people together that you actually have a clear outcome. You need to achieve something or you want to achieve something through a workshop. Do you need a workshop for that? 
Yeah, so best reserved for those like complex, wicked problems, perhaps the things that take you know multiple perspectives or lots of unwinding in order to come out the other side with something. I want to circle back to what you said with starting with the outcome, because one of my questions was going to be, how would you approach constructing a workshop? You've identified that this is the opportunity for one. So what's the next step in approaching the construction? When I think of the basic elements in the course, I keep the companies I, I mentioned as, as key pillars. So it's like, again, going back to this definition of putting people together in a room, making them go through a series of exercises within a limited time frame to achieve a, a specific outcome. Those are the four key pillars. So basically, it's the goal you want to achieve or the outcome you want to achieve, who should be involved. And then you have these two, which, which are the time you need for that and the exercises you include uh, in that workshop. So these kind of relate to each other. You know, it's not that you get one before the other. So it's like you start with the outcome. If, if the outcome really uh, needs people to come together and you really need to unblock this with the workshop, then you start. So you know the goal, you know who should be involved. If you know where you start and where you want to go, you say you need this, this type of exercise. And you say, okay, we can wrap it up in two hours, put it in a way. So again, working back kind of backwards and getting the general shape, especially around the duration and the process of moving from start to finish. When you talk about the the different exercises, I think another misconception may be thinking exercises are icebreakers and an icebreaker can be an exercise and can be very powerful when used correctly, I believe. But what exercises are you referring to here? And maybe how would someone look at the the variation between them and know maybe which ones to pull in for what types of workshops? There are some layers inside this, this question. And so, so there will be some layers inside this answer. So first of all, about icebreakers, I'm a fan of Edward de Bono. And all this lateral thinking, and he has a lot of exercises there, like connect random words or like look at a newspaper and then try to connect that with your challenge and go on YouTube, watch a random video and try to connect what you saw with the actual challenge we're actually tackling. But that's that's another topic. We can we can have a, a like an episode on, on Edward Sebono's work that can be applied to facilitation. It's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, then in terms of what kind of exercises, I think workshops also have a narrative. You know, and they need to have this connecting thread. So the final picture is like the, the outcome you wanted to achieve at the end. So you need to find the exercises that actually like tackle that goal, but actually go well with each other. Because this is all about people. So if people are going to be sitting together for two hours, you cannot really put one intense exercise after the other, you know. Uh, so it's like you have to be mindful of that. There are a lot of frameworks to this. You know, you have HSMART framework, you have um, game storming, you have uh, ideal. But basically, just, I, I, I take it to a really basic level and I, and I store exercises in, in two big categories. Opening exercises and closing exercises. With opening, I mean all the exercises that increase the number of ideas we have. And when you're closing, the one that reduces them. You know, for example, let's say we, we go for ideation session. I mean, this is a pretty popular exercise, so maybe listeners know about this crazy eights. You know, when you when you draw ideas and you have like eight ideas in, in eight minutes, one idea per minute. So you have a lot of ideas then. And then if you re, if you pick one or if you vote on them, you reduce the number. So of course, you can go more granular. If you have exercise to evaluate ideas, you have exercise to are more about compromising or like or like saying, okay, this is, I don't know, who's taking this part of the work, who's doing this afterwards. But normally in the course, I try to keep it the basis of this is for more ideas, this is for less ideas. 
That's how we keep it. And I think the way that you've set that up is similar to that convergent and divergent thinking as well, right? So it's it's nice to be able to kind of think about this as the way to generate more of those ideas and then go into the honing phase and whittle those down. Because ultimately, at the crux of all workshops are decisions. Um, that outcome needs to be baked into the process of the workshops. What do you think are some of the needed skills in becoming a facilitator? So, okay, the skills you would need to, to start facilitating successfully, I would say you need to be, well, good communicator is, is kind of like the, the key. As we said before, it's all about human communication. So yeah, that's one thing. Then you also need to have this, um, this is a bit of a soft skill, but it's like you need to perceive people's energy and people's engagement. That's why researchers are actually really good facilitators because they, they, they can perceive when people are engaged, when people are like losing attention, you know, the energy levels are also super important. So having this perception is super, super important. Time management is key. When you go over time in a workshop, that's like a big no for me. If you plan this for two hours, then you, may, you have to be sure this is going to fit in two hours, you know. So don't go two hours and 20 minutes. So time management and planning, which go hand in hand, are also two really good skills. Um, and I would say that understanding the facilitator role is super, super important because when you are a facilitator, you are, you're not the star of the show anymore. You are like the group is the star of the show and you guide them, you, you help them navigate something, you help them achieve something. Yeah, it's a good guiding principle, I think. Um, and an important note around like the mindset because I think even E.J. and Smart may say this, it's like, be the be the guide, not the hero. And the role of the facilitator is there to guide the team towards the best outcomes, uncovering the best ideas, directing them towards the best potential outcomes, not suggesting it and being the, the center of attention as you, as you describe. So I think that's a, a great holistic look at like some of the skills at play in facilitating or putting on that facilitator's hat. What do you think separates the best facilitators from the average facilitator? Well, the last part, I think, what I just mentioned about understanding the role is key, again, and that you really, really believe that and you really, you're able to do that switch. Because when you are a, like a professional facilitator and you do this as a, as a consultant or a freelancer or, or whatever, um, it's really easy because, yeah, a company hired me, I just go there or I just connect with them. I don't have any clue what they do <laughs> or a very little clue of what they do. I can't really contribute there. So for, for, for external facilitators, it's something that you kind of grasp quite quickly if you're working with clients. But if you are in-house and you are doing this kind of like micro level to put it in a way or like day-to-day -day facilitation where you're implementing different types of workshops on your process, uh, it, it's hard, but and it takes some time. So that's super, super important. But then I would say that planning, good planning is, is what really sets you apart. Great facilitators know like a handful of exercises really well, and they can combine them in ways and they already know how, how stuff works and they, they are realistic with time. So if you can well prepare as a facilitator and you selected the right exercise that also cater to the, to the right levels of energy, you know, it's like, it's not only about the right exercise to achieve the desired outcome, but also the right exercise that pairs well in terms of energy. But if you're if you already have that covered and you plan correctly, you're set up for success. You know, you really have it. Yeah, I agree. I think the best experiences that I've been part of have really felt like an experience. Um, and I think that's what resonates with me as a designer, like in the same way that I, I see the parallels um, in amazing facilitators that are also researchers because of that natural inclination towards asking incredible questions and listening and 
energy uh, awareness is the same thing with designers. I feel like every um, small component has been considered. And it's almost like, you know, when you get into that total state of flow, when that's engaged, there's nothing really like it. And you know it when you feel it and when you're in it. And when you think about that across a group of people, like working together, building off of one another, there's nothing like that energy. So there's something to, you know, those right combination of factors and the the skills at play that really achieve that. So let's talk about why it's so valuable. What does it enable product teams really to do? Uh, if they're not doing it now, most especially, like what would be the ambition to do it? Okay, we can start with a simple way of putting it. You know, facilitation is about bringing people together. So the first thing that facilitation can help a team achieve is collaborate more effectively and more efficiently. So from there, you can you can take it to any any of the cases you want. It's all about, first of all, with being more effective and more efficient, sometimes you have processes that kind of like stand too long and you just like, you have to go back and forth and there's a lot of, you know, misalignment. There's like, we're working, you know, towards some clear goals. We are not on the same page. There's like silos. So breaking all that, can really take a product or a team to the next level. You know, I've seen teams, for example, product teams who now implement, uh, together with researchers, they implement workshops for kickoff. So they really state what they need and what they know and their assumptions. I've also seen, for example, the designers when they want to work on something together with researchers. And for example, they, they want to, I don't know, refurbish a, a flow. Uh, they have, okay, they have the input from the researchers. These are all cases or, or examples of teams I train. Another case, for example, is prioritization. What, where are we going to tackle this quarter? Or like, let's craft a roadmap or, or a vision for our product for the following six months or the following year. How do we get there? It can help you out, sort out ideas. You know, sometimes you have a, a lot of ideas and some of them are half-baked. Worship can really help you sort them out. So, so yeah, teams, product teams can really benefit from doing this. Yeah. And when you go through, you know, just all of those opportunities, I mean, it, there's so many of them that occur across the product development, you know, life cycle and all of those collaboration points between researchers, designers, product managers. And I think like you've described, I mean, um, last misalignment, greater prioritization, um, clearer next steps. I think even honing those big ideas, it's like very helpful for taking those big strategic sessions and then turning them into the actionable next steps. Like, how do you actually go make it happen? That's a difficult thing to do. It's definitely a difficult thing across lots of people and, um, yeah, different competing priorities. So getting that together through through workshop facilitation really streamlines the process. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that the action part the, or the actionable part is actually key. You know, workshops are all about action, you know, and they are about moving things forward. The energy or the drive a workshop has kind of moves forward and, and avoids you getting stuck. It really creates this drive forward. Yeah, I mean, the speed and the alignment, I, I think, cannot be underestimated. And like you said, I mean, the energy as well. I feel like that's, it's not just the effectiveness, but it's that like empowerment like when people are motivated and they're all motivated around the same goal and they're charting towards the same direction, that's, that's a huge superpower. <laughs> so like for, you know, product teams, regardless, you're re your researcher, designer, product manager, you maybe looked across the processes that are in place across your team and the points of collaboration or the, you know, friction opportunities that you might be able to, you know, start incorporating workshops for, what would you say are some of the tactical steps that you can do to get started in 
either implementing these things or developing the skills in order to help you implement them? Well, I would say, first of all, start small. And, and I think that's also important is the buy-in from other people. Because how do I convince my team we need to spend two hours and we need to do this two-hour workshop next week? You know, so that's that's the key part that we also need to work on. Um, so, you know, be clear about the goal. Say, okay, this is the value it can bring. Also, as for the first chance, that's also a really useful one. It's like, hey, let's try it out. If it works, we can start doing it. But we don't know if it works. So we can try it out. You know, the trying out part is always the, the wild card of, of uh, for pitching something. Yeah, let's try it out once. And and it normally works well. No, I mean, it, it, people get really excited about them if, if they haven't tried them before. So that's also another thing to consider. The buy-in is critical. Yeah, I, I relate to that. Seeking those opportunities to facilitate, you know, whether that's a a kickoff of a project or a retro or something. It just allows you to run it as a workshop and then, you know, blow their socks off. And then that's, as you said, you know, like really helps to get the momentum behind it and um, show the value and just kind of snowballs from there. Is there any like surprising things that you've observed or learned through being a facilitator? Well, the thing that surprised me is that some of the coolest ideas came from people who are the a little bit, I'm not going to say underestimated, but like people would not expect this, this caliber of ideas from them, you know, which is actually part of the power of the worship. Like you even out the terrain. So loud voices do not dominate the conversation or like hierarchies do not dominate the conversation. So what, what really surprised me is that some of the people who were maybe a bit outside, they actually had like groundbreaking things. So the charm of facilitation is that when people get together and you create the the, the appropriate context, you can really unlock powerful stuff. You know, great things happen when people get together in the right setting with the right mindset, with the right framework. It's super powerful. Yeah, it is definitely a game changer. And I think, as you've mentioned, also an individual game changer. I can see the duality between how being a researcher has helped you be a facilitator and being a facilitator has helped you be a better researcher. So I think there's so much opportunity for us collectively as teams, but also as you know, individuals as far as the skill of facilitating and, and creating and, and facilitating workshops. This is awesome. I'm going to transition into our next part of the episode, just where we ask the hat trick questions, as we call them. And these are the standard three questions that we ask every one of our guests just to get to know them a little bit. So I think I might know the answer to this, <laughs> given our, our topic. But the first question is, what's one thing you've done in your career that's helped you succeed that few others do? Okay, I'm not going to say facilitation because it would be a little bit too meta, right? I remember this, this advice from an old football coach. I was very young and I was pissed that people would not give me the ball. And I was like, yeah, you need to show yourself open so people will give you the ball. You know? And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And it's like, like your teammates will not see you if you hide. And then it really resonated with me. And then years later, it's like I was thinking of that in terms of work. You know, you need to show yourself out there. You need to ask for stuff. You need to ask for the ball. So you just like you're out there. You talk to people. You help people out. People help you out. So that that really helped me out. I love that analogy, and that's sage advice for sure. My next question is: What's the industry-related book that you've given or recommended the most? Okay, in this case, uh, I mean. For facilitation, I would say Game Storming is a great book. But if I change hearts from facilitator to researcher, I have to say, also I was, I was also super happy to see here on this podcast, 
Uh, it's Erica Hall. I, I, I love her stuff. And so, so Just Enough Research by Erica Hall is one of my favorite books of all time, together with a thing like a UX researcher by Dr. David Travis. Those books for me were like groundbreaking. Like, okay, I really want to become a researcher now. But those are great books, great recommendations. My last question for you is, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Okay, I have a thing for travel stuff that kind of, you know, falls in itself. So for some reason, I'm obsessed with small, like things that you can fall and you can reuse, but only for traveling, because I would never use that where I live. You know, it's like just for traveling. I love that. Yeah, the modular minimalism in the travel space. I, I feel like people can really nerd out about that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julian. I really appreciate you being on the podcast and for talking about this topic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it, was, it was my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. The Optimal Path is hosted by Ash Oliver and brought to you by Maze, a product research platform designed for product teams. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find resources linked in the show notes. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe to The Optimal Path by visiting maze.co forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time.